Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I am the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, and I got into this space because my mom lived with dementia for 30 years, and that means all of us as family members did too, and I just felt a real lack of services, products, and tools to help families live graciously with this disease, and so it's an honor to do Alzheimer's Speaks Radio because I I get to talk to people all around the world, and maybe you can be our next guest because everybody out there has a story that needs to be told and needs to be heard, and I would love to be able to lift your voice and and join the community because the only way we are going to win this battle against the disease is by sharing knowledge and, and really our, our heart story of what do we need, what's worked, what hasn't. And today we are going to have an absolutely amazing show. We have a, a Stephen G. Post back with us. And he was on our show just about a year ago. And he is doing fantastic work around the world. And there's just no denying um, the power and the culture change that he is that he is making. When we did our show last, Stephen, we talked about the moral changes of Alzheimer's disease, which is one of his books, um, and the hidden gifts of helping, which I, I thought was just real powerful. So I'm going to put the link to that show there too, because after listening to this one, I think you're going to want to listen to that one as well. Stephen is an opinion leader and a public speaker. He's a best-selling author of so many books. You may have heard of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer and Happier Life. All of these have just been powerful books and bestsellers by him. And he has been quoted by more than 4,000 national and international newspapers and magazines, Parade Magazine, O Magazine, Oprah, we love you out there, U.S. News, The World Report, and it just goes on. And, and television shows, too many to include. He has written another wonderful book that we're going to talk about today called God and Love on Route 80, which again is just another amazing book, and I can't wait to get to it. So welcome, Stephen. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lori, and it's so nice to be with you and with your audience. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. I, Like I said, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation because it is just such an honor uh, to have us with you. You are so easy to talk to and so full of, of wonderful insights and things that people can apply. And I think sometimes we just don't think about some of the, the basics that are so crucial to being good communicators and being good human beings at, at the start. So before I go into the, my line of questioning, I always like to ask every um, person that I interview if they've been personally touched by dementia. Yes, I have. My grandmother 
on my dad's side uh, passed away uh, of what was, I'm sure, Alzheimer's disease, although uh, back uh, in the mid-70s, we didn't necessarily use that term. Uh, but yeah, and I would do um, assisted oral feeding with her toward the the later phase of her of her illness, uh, and this actually was very influential on me. The silver lining was that I noticed things. I, I became a noticer, and I, I noticed that sometimes um, she seemed to be a little more connected with her self identity. Uh, surprisingly, at times she could call me by name, um, although that wasn't so important to me. But the main thing was that as we did feeding, I felt this kind of uh, uh, almost spiritual connection with her, and I began to really think of people with dementia as not being gone or absent or you know dead or some such thing that their communication system has suffered, but that underneath it all, uh, they're still there, uh, and not just some little fragment, but in fact, uh, their whole identity. And so uh, long ago, when I was at the University of Chicago, I used to study something called terminal lucidity, which your audience can Google, terminal lucidity. It's a very well-known psychiatric uh, reality that people at the end of their life, even when they've had these remarkable neurodegenerative conditions, they'll sort of come into themselves. And a lot of my writings, um, you know, Hope and the Deeply Forgetful, is really a, a compilation of these remarkable moments. And so hope for me is always you've got to be open to surprises and and don't ever think that underneath the the chaos there isn't um, a full soul, if you will. So I do take that kind of view. I, I I when I think about something like Alzheimer's, I've been working with the deeply forgetful, as I call them, for about thirty years. Um, I I think of it as a neurological disease, but I don't think it's a disease that ultimately takes away a person's uh, core eternal identity. Well, I love I love the way you summarize that because I I too felt with my mom that it was a spiritual journey on a level of spirituality I'd never experienced before. I mean, it was so profound and really really made me realize that uh, our connectedness is so much deeper. You know, one of the things I talk about when I I speak is. I say that um, we're, we're caregivers before um, before we're born. You know, a baby in the womb gives care. And people will go, well, how can that be? And, and I, to that, I just say, how many conversations have changed? How many bellies have you patted? How many tummies have you talked to? It changes everything. And, and that goes the full life cycle, and I believe, afterwards, that we, we are just so deeply connected and and so I, I love that, and I think it's something that people really need to understand And because I think they've been kind of fed this fear of, of you know, this, this outside shell of a body. Oh, they don't know you. It's okay not to visit. And yet I've had those moments of lucidity with my mom, even in her very end stages where, um, 
questioned if she knew who I was and I had heard her say my name for three years. And then in this brief kind of comical moment, she said my name and laughed and then went back to sleep. And I just sat on her bedside and, and I bawled for like two and a half hours because I, it just touched me so deeply because I, I started to question like a lot of people do, does she still know me? And it's not, it's not about the name, but we put so much pressure on that. But when you get those gifts, it's just like, oh, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I'm, I'm going to just show people your book first before we get into some, some questions here. And it's um, God in Love and on route, route 80. And it's just beautifully, beautifully written. Can you kind of summarize for people what they can expect? And then we'll, we'll dig a little deeper into it. Well, there's a chapter um, about deeply forgetful people. And I've, as you know, used that term instead of demented because demented is oftentimes uh, a term of derision and unkindness. So the deeply forgetful suggests a continuum or a continuity. We're all somewhere on the spectrum of forgetfulness. I remember a professor I had at the University of Chicago who came leaping into Swift Hall, into the coffee shop, and he looked at all of us students and he says, does anybody know if I drove today? So, you know, it's, they say it's okay to forget where you parked your car, but it's not great if you forget that you have a car that parked, that's parked. He forgot that. But, you know, uh, we all have these moments, and we have anxiety because we can't remember a name. There's so many medical students in this medical school I teach in, and I know most of them, but I forget names, and it just kind of drives me crazy. But you can only retain so much. So I see forgetfulness um, as a continuum. and um, uh, uh, and, and so in, in my view, uh, that, that notion is more connective. It, it, it's, it's less them versus us, those who aren't demented and those who are demented. And it's more that we're all part of the same inclusive human family. And the subtitle to God and Love on Route 80 is the hidden mystery of human connectedness. And that's just what you're talking about, that even though a person can be uh, relatively silent and of course if you just are patient and you use it might be music and memory it might be some other intervention and you cue them you can actually be surprised at, at the expressions uh, of continuing self-identity that will be really quite awesome as you mentioned and I think most caregivers I've known uh, have had those experiences with their loved ones but it's really important just not to think totally materialistically because that's a big open question. What is it to be a human being? Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not just that um, uh, we don't have something uh, eternal within us, uh, an identity, uh, a narrative. Uh, it may be inhibited. It may be difficult to get to, but I think, uh, I think it's there. And God Love on Route 80 is really about synchronicity, it has a foreword by Larry Dossie, MD, who wrote a beautiful book called One Mind. It's about experiences I've had over the course of my life, um, uh, which are really quite remarkable at times, but, but everybody has them. Premonitions, moments of synchronicity when 
in answer to a desperate prayer, just the perfect person is there out of nowhere. And it's too uncanny to be explained just in terms of, you know, probabilities and luck. And so, uh, uh, you know, Carl Jung spoke about this. And it, it turns out that an awful lot of physicists uh, today and um, many, uh, um, many others uh, uh, do believe that there's a mystery to the mind, uh, that it's more than matter. Uh, I mean, Jung believed in a collective unconscious. Um, it's a nice little video, uh, Google video by Rudy Tanzi, the neurologist at Harvard, uh, which is worth looking at. It's called Terminal Lucidity and Dementia. It's just a two-minute video, but he basically says, look, you know, we can't explain this scientifically, but um, we all have to acknowledge that this happens, and it happens quite often. So my big question is, all right, somebody's had their, you know, their chin down. They haven't been communicating for maybe weeks or months and months, but suddenly uh, they come back into themselves. So what is that? Um, you know, is it some little fragment of continuing uh, neurological firing? Or, or is it that what's underneath all of this chaos somehow comes into the foreground under the right conditions? And I think the latter. I totally agree with you. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to share a story to kind of put that home with, with my mom in her end stages, um, very end stages, started coming to me in dreams. And, you know, some people might think that's crazy, but, I mean, she came to me so clearly in this dream saying, you're not going to be here when I die. I need you gone. I need to know you're going to continue your work. And, um, and then right before she passed, maybe two weeks, um, she woke me up again and said, you know, I'm not staying much longer. You better finish that obit. And at two in the morning, I got up and started working on her obituary. And when she was actively dying, I had two gigs in Arizona. In my family, other than my daughter, all thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I am always the person to be there when someone passes, always. I mean, that's just my role. And has been, but I felt really comfortable in going. I knew that's what I was supposed to do. And so um, the reason I'm going to share this story, because I think it hits on a lot of different levels with all of this. But so I, I left um, and, you know, I had my goodbyes. I think I ran to the nursing home three times that morning before I left and just double checking on things. I um got to the airport and everything just lined up the guy. And I swear, you know, my belief is my mom lined this all up. The guy I sat next to had a father-in-law with dementia. The whole flight we talked about dementia and he was so thankful that I was sitting next to him and I was thankful he was sitting next to me. I get down to baggage claim and my daughter calls and says, I, I think this is it. I think, I think, you know, I think grandma's dying. Do you want to say goodbye one more time? And I'm like, yeah, put her on the phone. Um, though she, you know, was kind of comatose. And, and Danielle says, well, how about if we, we FaceTime? So here I am in baggage claim, holding out my phone and looking at my mom and talking to her and saying goodbye one last time. I hang up. The woman next to me in baggage claim hands me a Kleenex. And says, I don't know if you know this, but I sat across the aisle from you and my mom had dementia and I 
I eavesdropped your whole conversation and I so wish I would have known you before <laughs> when I was going and this, my whole journey through my whole trip was lined up with people. And even when, and then through video conference, which I think a lot of families don't understand, you can still connect. And I know I was connecting with my mom. I was connecting with my family so I could take part in the last rites and guiding them to do the things my mom wanted them to experience with end of life. And it was so beautiful. And even when I went on stage, um, 10 minutes before I called my mom and I said, mom, we're in this together. We always have been 10 minutes till showtime. I expect you to be there. And I, I, I walk up on stage, Stephen, and I look up and the room is just bright white and it's chilly and I trip. I almost fall on stage. And at that second, I don't know if my mom passed or if she's there. When I get done, I call and my daughter says, Mom, it was the strangest thing. She said, as soon as you hung up the phone, Grandma's body got so hot, she was beet red, we couldn't cool her down till about 15 minutes ago. And I said, that's when I walked off the stage. Our connections are unbelievably deep. Yeah, so that's a profound story. And, and you're talking about the spiritual journey of it all. Um, and mothers and their children have this connection, especially mothers, I think, because mother's love is very powerful. But, you know, I tell this story uh, in the book about when I was 17, I was at Reed College, and late on a, um, on a Friday night, about 9 o'clock California time, I was sitting in the coffee shop. I was at Reed when Steve Jobs was around and so forth. Um, a guy came bounding into the coffee shop. He said, my name's Andy. He had a leather jacket on. I have a brand new Harley Davidson shovelhead motorcycle. It's the fastest in the world. Who wants to go for a ride? It doesn't snow up in Oregon, but it rains and it gets cold. And like a complete fool, because my executive function hadn't quite kicked in, I said, I'll go out. And I got on this bike and he took off. He hit 140 in about a minute, went through every stop sign, every red light. Then he hit 180 on the Pacific Coast Highway going down to California. And I was screaming. I was asking him, please let me off. I thought I was dead. I honestly did. And he was screaming into the night air. The, the rain was beating on our faces. And then he did this crazy evil Knievel U-turn over the midway. And he actually dropped me off exactly in front of the Reed College coffee shop. And I staggered off the bike. I managed to get across the ravine to my dormitory put one foot in the common room and the payphone rang on the wall and I never picked up the phone. I mean, my mom could never get a hold of me. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, but I just felt somehow pushed toward the phone and I picked it up and I just said, hello. And it was my mother. And she said, Oh, Stevie, thank God you're alive. I was asleep and I had this incredible premonition and fear and I was sweating and I thought you were dead, and I just had to call. And I told your mom, you know, I, I thought I was dead too, and we went over the whole motorcycle story. And, um, and, and then I asked myself later, so how is it that somebody who's 3,000 miles away, you know, and, and of course, uh, you know, uh, in a different time zone, right, that she could have that premonition about me? And I think that 
this is what I'm talking about, you know, the hidden mystery of human connectedness in, in God and love on Route 80. It's all about these kinds of experiences. And I do think myself that, um, that this deeper level of connection exists. I don't think dementia, Alzheimer's, any disease of the brain separates people from their essence, from their higher being. I just don't believe that. And sometimes when I'm sitting, uh, when I was sitting with my grandmother, for example, um, you know, and she wasn't communicating much, but I felt that she was there. My sense was that, you know, she's already gone down to the railroad station and she's got one foot on that train bound for glory. And so she's way ahead of the game. You know, That's kind of how I thought of it. And, and that's why like, I was in India five years ago at the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies. And it was in Bangalore. It's a great place. And we had a huge conference on um, deeply forgetful people with Indian Hindu neurologists and philosophers. And they all agreed with me that, that just because of, uh, the communication system uh, is damaged it doesn't mean that, that a person isn't still there. And believe it or not, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who hangs out at Bangalore from time to time. He was the, he, he walked in and no one made much notice of him. He didn't want to be noticed, but he likes that institute. And after I spoke, he put his hand down on the table and he said, yes, there is no reason to think that the consciousness of someone who was deeply forgetful is less worthy than the consciousness of someone whose memory is fully intact. So it was, it was consciousness, not linear rationality, not the ability to kind of lay down plans, but the symbolic consciousness, the sense of, 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 of being, that was all there for him. And that is how I think of it. It's a little more Eastern maybe, but that's how I think of Alzheimer's disease. I totally am right in sync with you. I, I, there were too many things that happened, not only with, with my mom but when my dad was dying of brain cancer and and others that I've experienced but I think you know you can't experience it if you're not open to it either and I think that that's really really critical um, to be open to new ways because those and some people you know might say oh that's that's crazy I mean I've seen people roll their eyes that didn't really happen and I'm like I, I couldn't make that up if I wanted to you know with some of this stuff it's it it, it's just it's just the way it is and it's the way I think part of it that that I saw it that I was open you know to seeing it and and you know you can block that stuff I think pretty pretty simply but gosh the biggest gifts in the world were you going to make a comment on that yeah so I, I think you're you're so correct uh Lori I, I agree entirely to me you know hope and you know I've said this before hope among the deeply forgetful as a caregiver. I mean, I spent 20 years in Cleveland with the chapter there and have done all kinds of things around the country. Hope is being open to surprises. And that means that you have to just notice. Uh, you, have to, you have to see the winks. You have to hear the whispers. You just have to notice uh, that there are these expressions of a continuing being uh, and 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 we're told somehow that oh no that's silly, but when a guy is uh, you know hard headed as Rudy Tansy, I like Tansy at, at Harvard. I mean he's a he's a tough minded neurologist. When he um, says that this thing of terminal lucidity happens very commonly 
with people who are in the end stage of Alzheimer's disease, even very, very much at death, um, you know, I don't have a statistic on it, but it's, it's frequent enough. And so then you just have to ask the question, you know, what's going on? Where's that coming from? Where's it coming from? And, 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 and so this to me is very suggestive that we need to rethink all of this. And I like music in memory with Dan Cohen, as, you, as I know most people do. Dan is about 20 miles away from, from here, and we've been writing some papers together uh, in the last two years. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you see someone who is relatively mute and somehow they come into themselves through personalized music, it's so inspiring for their caregivers because they realize, you know, I'm not taking care of a husk, a quote-unquote non-person. You know, I don't like that concept at all. Uh, it's so exclusionary. You know, someone who's not there, someone who's gone. I mean, we have to completely reverse that bias. It's a, it's a hyper-cognitive bias. It's a materialistic bias. And if we just think about the human being as both a body and then also some sort of inner light, a kind of spiritual quality. If you're a Quaker, it's the inner light. You could be a Buddhist or a Hindu. Namaste, I honor the divine in you. You honor the divine in me. But if we could just open up our thought to thinking that there's something more mysterious about the human being than just uh, matter and cells and brain and tissue, uh, then we can be, I think, uh, much more engaged and much more hopeful. You've said so many things there that I like. Um, I, again, I, I think part of, you know, the hope is that we also have to, we have to, we also have to be our authentic selves and we have to show our vulnerability um, sometimes to get those connections. And because in our world, you know, we're supposed to take care of everything. We're just supposed to do it on our own. And people feel like that's the expectation of them. And, and so it makes it, it makes it really daunting. It makes it really isolating. But when you can be your authentic self and talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and all those feelings in between of what's going on when you're living with the disease or when you're caring for somebody, you can at least move through them and move past them and, and get on to something else, which I think is, is very, very important. And we, we tend to um, listen to our peers in the news and marketing and all of that kind of stuff, um, who, which has pushed fear about this whole thing. It's scary. Nobody wants to talk about it. And, and one of the biggest things that I guess I was exposed to um, on my journey that I found was people would ask me, actually, <clears throat> how is my mom doing? And they asked for two reasons. There were two separate groups. One really wanted to know, and the other one wanted to give me permission to never go back because it was too painful and too scary for them to hear about and when I realized that, it was like, wow, do we need education here? Because the, the stories and, and the, the connectiveness that you can have is so rich and so deep. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't have any words. But, you know, most of our communication is nonverbal anyways. And it's teaching people to, you know, surpass and get past that expectation of, of you have to have words and it has to be in a constructive sentence like it's always been. 
and and I just you know that just blows me away how far we have to come you know with with all of this when it comes to vulnerability I think sometimes we as care partners have to almost get to our lowest to find that connectiveness and again I'll share a quick little story where my mom was um she just really wasn't doing very well at all. And they had moved her to the lowest functioning unit, which of course that's not what they call it, but that's what families, families know what it means. And I, she was screaming at the staff who were just trying to get her up and moved and they were using a Hoyer lift and she was terrified. And I stood outside her door and I just, crocodile tears streaming down my face and I my stomach was just twisted in a knot and hurt so bad and I just kept thinking this is so unfair for anyone to be this fearful you know and I just I just prayed to God and I encouraged people you know to pray to whoever they believe in it doesn't make any difference just so you're not alone and if that's your higher self if that's where you're at then go there you know but but just know that somebody else has an answer out there and I ended up walking in and my mom is still screaming at two staff and they're just ping-ponging back and forth trying to get her out of bed saying, Dorothy, we need your knees bent and your arms straight. We're going to push this button. We're going to get you in your wheelchair. You're going down for lunch. And they didn't react to her her behaviors at all. And I, I remember um, as I'm walking in the door, I, I felt this arm go around my shoulder and I heard my dad whisper in my ear, ask her to go water scan. Now, keep in mind, my dad's dead. And, and I'm thinking, okay, that empty bed next to mom is mine because I'm having a nervous breakdown. And then I just sat with that a minute and I thought, I got nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose except two staff are going to think I'm crazier than a bed bug. So I walked up to my mom and I just said, mom, do you want to go water skiing? And she went from raging, crazy, just madness. I mean, she was so frightened. And she turned to me and she had this brilliant smile on her face. And she said, well, yeah. And so I said, knees bent, arms straight. And I said, hit it to the staff. And they pushed the button. Every time I tell this story, I can literally hear the machine and see my mom getting pulled up by this machine and her hands were cupped like she was holding the tow rope. And what I realized in that moment was my, my dad helped me communicate to, you know, he came to the call and rescue because I was so vulnerable and I was at my wits end and why my mom was able to react properly then was because those three commands were what my dad taught uh, my family and so many others how to water ski knees bent arms straight hit it but if I wouldn't have gotten that vulnerable if I wouldn't have been kind of at my wits end and then if I wouldn't have been strong enough and and not worry about ridicule for posing a crazy question because everyone knows my mom's not going water skiing but that worked for months with her Go ahead, Stephen. Well, I I love the I love this account and the fact that your dad was there in in that special way is is really profound, and and you know you don't have to be embarrassed about about these experiences. That's one of the reasons I wrote 
God and Love on Route 80 because I've been in medical schools, as you know, you know, Chicago, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 20 years Case Western with all these great Alzheimer's people, uh, clinicians, researchers, caregivers, and and um, and Stony Brook for 11 years. And, and you know, uh, when you begin to think about the experience of someone with dementia in a way that is at least open-minded with regard to the spiritual quality of the mind that is not just derived from brain tissue or uh, uh, brain pathways, but a part of the mind that is really, if you will, it's, it's, it's a spiritual gift and it has its eternity to it. If you begin to think in those terms, which maybe is a little easier. For, so Joe Foley and I, who Joe Foley was a very senior neurologist who co-founded the Alzheimer's Association nationally. He passed away about five years ago. When I, and this is in the book. When I went to Case Western in 1988 to interview for a job in the med school, he interviewed me. And he, he was Irish Catholic, uh, and we talked a lot about uh, people with dementia. At that time, I hadn't started talking about them in terms of the deeply forgetful. That would come later. But um, we agreed that we had to at least be agnostic. We did not know that there wasn't something much more mysterious there than meets the eye. And so Joe and I went to a geriatric psychiatric hospital in Mount Vernon, Ohio, which for Ohioans, it's, it's near Kenyon College. And there was a whole wing of this place that was devoted to uh, older people who had Down syndrome. So they were in their 40s and 50s. And they are sometimes referred to as the duly diagnosed because typically, you know, they'll lose some of their qualities and they'll, they'll succumb to some degrees of dementia in their fifth and sixth decades of life. So we noticed that the caregivers were mostly, there were Hindu nurses' aides, there were some Hindu physicians there, uh, and they were completely devoted to this group of about 40 patients. They were so diligent, so meticulous, and in all the little details of their facial expression, their tone of voice, I mean, it was absolutely incredible. So Joe and I took a couple of them out to a a pizza restaurant nearby. There's only one pizza restaurant in Gambier, Ohio. There's only one restaurant, so that's why it was pizza. And uh, and we asked them, so why do you care so beautifully for these people? Uh, and then they told us, namaste. And that's the Hindu greeting. So I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. And they said, just because someone has lost some degree of memory, at least in terms of its external expression, it doesn't mean that they're not there. And so this was incredibly uh, beautiful and enlightening. And it's important because we need to be open to this. Now, you know, I've, I've for all these years interacted with so many families and a lot of times grandchildren or adult kids will say, is grandma still there? And I, I was so scared to answer that question in an academic journal, okay, for all these reasons of culture and fear. Because I'm not a, I'm, I'm a, not, I'm a, I believe in the material reality around us, but I'm not saying that that's the whole story. I think there's something more. So I wrote a, I wrote an article entitled "Is Grandma Still There?" when I was in India at the Indian National Institute of Advanced Studies, so I could be thinking in these terms. It got a lot of attention. But, um, you know, that's just my feeling is that in, in our cosmopolitan world, we have to be really careful 
not to inflict or impose a totally materialistic concept of the human being on people who really, in their culture and in their traditions, see something much more than that. And for those of you, you know, who, you know, you have all kinds of backgrounds, but there's this nice statement from St. Paul that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, you know, not, and that includes, that includes dementia. And so you can go through dark times and difficult times, but, but just realize that there's always the possibility of grace. The first article I ever wrote on Alzheimer's disease was in a journal called First Things, and it was called uh, Grace and the Deeply Forgetful. Wow. I, and, and I think that's, you know, again, so true when you say you, you can never be disconnected from God or, or your higher power. And, and you are a piece of that higher power, so that means you can never be disconnected from anyone unless you choose to be. You know, and, and sometimes I think it's learning new ways to communicate, becoming more open. Um, but I know for me, it, the small little things that I probably overlooked, those are the things to me that are so precious. You mentioned Dan Cohen with the music. We videotaped my mom, and she's been gone now for um, five years and in this video you know somebody was singing to her and we've got I don't know probably I don't know five or ten of them on on YouTube and she would fall asleep half the time and then she would kind of come back into it and she didn't know all the words but she knew some of them but I mean I've walked into conferences and other people have had my mom up on the screen and they're showing this example of kind of this awakening and this connection and to this day if I have a bad day I go to YouTube and I watch one of those little simple videos and it just settles my heart and settles my mind that I can get through anything. And I just, it's, it's almost like she's empowering me through that. And it's something when, you know, people watch um, just like with the alive inside um, film and stuff that they did that, you know, people see it. But I think sometimes we're so close to stuff, we miss it. And so utilizing other people's examples are really important. Go ahead. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're so, so entirely correct. We, we, we should not allow ourselves to miss these things. And, and it does take an observational discipline, if you will. So, you know, what, you know one other little vignette. So Joe Foley, who was really my mentor in this whole field, we went out to uh, Heather Hill in Chardon, Ohio, which is a, a nursing home there. And um, this was many years ago. Um, and I read the little biographical sketch on the wall about a guy named Jim. And it turns out he'd had a couple of sons and they were off in the world. And um, it said a little bit more about his life. So we went out into the special care unit. There were about 20, 25 people there. And I asked uh, one of the nurses, so where's Jim? And this nurse, very nicely, she took me over to talk to Jim. She introduced us. Uh, and then I took Jim by the hand and sat down with him. And, you know, I asked him a question, expecting an answer, but, you know, maybe thinking that one probably wouldn't come. I said, uh, how's your son, Bill? And he couldn't, he couldn't respond. But he had a twig in his hand, a, just a nice white twig. and he placed it in my hands, and when he did that, he smiled, sounds like your mom a little bit, you know, this effusive smile, like if, 
if, if warmth and, ha- and, and joy were electric, the place would have been on fire, literally, you know. And, and I was so impressed by that. So I, I, I held the twig, and then I gave it back to him, and we just had this back and forth. It wasn't verbal, but it was very, very deep. And, and we were really in the present, and we were connecting. And, um, uh, and then I asked the nurse, so what's the story about Jim and his twig? And she had said, well, when he was a, a boy, he grew up on the West Reserve of Ohio, which is, you know, the northeastern quadrant of Ohio. And uh, he had a dad who he loved very much. And his dad uh, gave him a chore in the morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. And so what he was doing was he was going back into that point in his life that he most associated with the tender, loving attachment, you know, of, of a really a pure a pure love, and that's where he found his comfort. And I think that people, you know, if we if we notice them carefully, we can pick up the kinds of things. Okay, so his linear rationality, Laurie, wasn't there. He couldn't propose plans and operationalize them in the future, but his symbolic rationality was there, and I like to always emphasize that with caregivers. You know, that's why artists like de Kooning uh, or um, uh, musicians like Copeland, who navigated Alzheimer's disease, even to the very end uh, of, of their lives. I mean, de Kooning was still painting and, and Copeland was still playing his favorite notes. I mean, we just have to be more aware of those safe zones that people can feel and get into because everything is coming at them in such buzzing confusion. I think that's a secret. So the other piece of it is just recognizing that at a, at a, call it a metaphysical level, uh, there's no, re- no reason to assume at all that, um, that they're not there in some sort of deepened state of consciousness. I went to a silence retreat up near Tur- uh, Hunter Mountain in New York with a bunch of Hindus in the summer because I needed to get, I was working so hard. It was five days. And I'll tell you, we didn't speak, but it, but it was really, really fabulous. And we connected. And you just have to approach the deeply forgetful as if you're on some wonderful retreat like that. And, and then be open, though, to the moments when, in fact, they will surprise you and they'll blurt something out that is completely interesting and lucid. You know, again, you said so many things. Um, I, I could just talk with you all day long when you're, you're talking about that, that connectiveness, you know, and what, what is the twig and being symbolic. Um, you know, so many people get frustrated when they're being shadowed by a person with dementia. They're just being followed and they're like, can I just go to the bathroom? You know, can I? And it's kind of like when you have a small child and they're just always right by you and following you around and people, you know, feel that they want their peace and quiet. But if you realize why, why they want to be so close to you, you know, you can really frame it as a gift and think of, you know, when you were a small child, maybe you had your little security blanket. That was your safety net. And to realize they want to be close because you are their safest place. What an honor that is to give somebody that peacefulness. And then I, you know, to me, I think it really takes the edge off of how you're looking at it. I mean, you just, you look at it in a whole different light when you, when you realize why they're having the reaction they're having. And, and sometimes I think we need to teach people what I call the um, reaction equation because they're, 
they're reading things wrong. They're taking them literally. And a person with dementia isn't always literal in terms of what they're saying. And the reaction equation is real simple. It's just people's, um, you know, past history um, and their current attitude create their perceptions and their perceptions then trigger their reactions. And they're not, we call them behaviors, which I hate that term because it's so negative. And, you know, you don't, you don't lift somebody up and say, oh, you've got a wonderful behavior. You no, know, you have a skill. When you have a behavior, you go to the corner, time out or you know, whatever. And how many times we say those types of things to people with dementia because we're the ones that don't understand. And, and they are trying the best they can to communicate with us. And we're the ones supposedly with our cognitive abilities, we're the ones that have to figure it out. And then, then it kind of almost can turn into a game and you learn these, you know, when you use that equation, you, you, you just learn these beautiful life lessons, which I think is what your book is all about that don't just apply to dementia, but, but all of life. And, and that's such a gift. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, so my, my book, God, Love, and Route 80, begins with a dream I had as a 15-year-old at St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, an Episcopal school. And I'm not going to go into the dream and how it shaped my life, but it was very, very powerful and deeply spiritual. And, you know, that probably explains why I ultimately quit a career in immunology at UPenn and went to the University of Chicago Divinity School to study with Joseph Campbell and Marcia Eliade and all those kinds of people. And, and yet somehow or another, I still got back into the health world and I've been had a wonderful career, but it all began with the spiritual experience that I had. And, and, and I, I, I want to talk about it in the book because, you know, um, People look at what you do in your life. They, 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 you look at you, Lori. I mean, you do great, great things for caregivers and the deeply forgetful. You're really you know, unbelievably creative and helpful to people. But, you know, the question of why you do it. Well, you had your experiences with your mom and all of that. But, but at the end, you know, it's, it's your spirituality that kind of is, is, is right in the middle of the picture to me. So I always, as a kid, you know, I, I like, I liked St. Paul and, I, and, and, um, and there's a passage, um, that I think is really, uh, really interesting. Um, love never fails. And, you know, that's not about just human love to me, because guess what? I'm, my love fails all the time. I was, I, I have two kids. They're growing up now there are some things I'd like to do over again. You know, I mean, you know, you're supposed to be scream free as a parent. 98% of parents scream at some point or another. It's not nice, you know, and we need to work a lot harder figuring out how to raise kind children. And by the way, that will probably protect them somewhat from dementia down the road because they'll be less stressed and stress is a factor. Um, uh, but to me, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that scientifically, but it's just a hypothesis. Um, I, I really feel like um, um, my love is very flawed and my love for my grandmother who with Alzheimer's disease was very flawed. But somehow or another, you know, there were those moments when I felt some sort of higher love, higher power, whatever you want to call it. And it was a different level of love. It was wiser. It was less myopic. It was more patient. It was more enduring, you know. And somehow by my being connected with that 
deeper love. Um, I could do better with my grandmother, whereas, whereas with other people, they just kind of wrote her off and they didn't want to be around her, but I just felt somehow. And that's why prayer, still, I spend a lot of time around deeply forgetful people to this day. And I counsel families around the country and do clinical ethics consultations galore. But I'm always prayerful about it. And I'm always uh, encouraging families um, when they ask me, so is grandma still there? I'm always saying, yeah, she's still there. And who the heck are we to be so arrogant to suggest that she's not there? A lot of people to that question will say, well, you know, people are delusional or they're hallucinating. And what I realized with my mom, you know, and they're like, well, they're not in this world. She's created her own. And I'm like, no, if you really listen, she's talking to people who have passed on. And if you watch her, she's not upset. She's very content. And so I didn't want her medicated. It was just like, it, this is, this is okay. This is, this is perfectly okay. In my, in my mind, not everyone agreed with me on that. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Japan. My wife, Mitsuko, is from uh, Kyoto. And um, I've, I've, in, I've interviewed Japanese caregivers, and, I, and I've read a lot of their literature. And there's one story about a, a, a daughter-in-law who's caring for her father-in-law, because it's a patriarchal system. And her father-in-law has Alzheimer's disease. And... Uh, you know, regrettably, he actually defecates on the tatami mat, the straw mat. Now, in Japanese culture, you can't wear your shoes in the house because even a speck of dust, you know, is, and you're in trouble. I get in trouble with my wife all the time, right? So um, uh, she's desperately scrubbing the tatami mat. And she looks up at her father-in-law, and he's described, you know, he's, 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 he's radiant. The sun is shining on his bald head. And you get all these intonations of, of enlightenment. Now, she's obviously experiencing a lot of stress. And, and, you know, my heart would go out to her in her experience. But uh, her father-in-law, who's sort of beyond the temporal glue of, of past and future, is kind of living in the pure present. You know, you can read Eckhart Tolle now, right? And when you're around someone who's deeply forgetful, you don't have to get on a bench in Central Park and meditate for 20 hours to reach the moment of now, right? Because <laughs> you, 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 you don't have any choice. You have to relate to these people in the now. And that's another barrier, Lori, is that, like, you know, we're so acculturated to getting from point A to point B to point C. I might say especially around New York. I mean, it's like zoom, 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 zoom. It's a little different than Cleveland, which I'm really a Clevelander at heart, you know, but I love New York too. But, but it's the whole thing of renegotiating time and moving beyond chrono chronological time. The Greeks had a word, chronos, chronological time, but they had another word for time called kairos. And kairos meant divine time. It meant time in the now. It meant time that was free of chronological anxieties and necessities and so if you could just be with them and notice i go back to what you're saying really notice what's going on and connect and be open-minded it can be a very profound experience so very true i got i have to comment on two things there one you had mentioned about you know the stress and in how that can you know your hypothesis and in mine as well 
how it can, you know, trigger and, and push us down this line, you know, with dementia. And I'm going to give people an example of when I got divorced, I was very stressed. Even though I wanted the divorce, I was still very stressed and my water heater went out. And my brother came over to replace my water heater. I'm a girl that always has my tools, you know, and so he's like, go, go get me a, a, a wrench. And so I go upstairs and, you know, in my closet and I'm looking, 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 and I don't know what a wrench is. I mean, I'm blank. I am gone. I, there's nothing. I go back down there like 10 minutes later because I'm thinking it's going to come to me. It's going to come to me. And I, I knew what the tools were in totality, but I couldn't identify it. So I went down to my brother and I said, I don't know what it looks like. And I gave him a piece of paper and a pencil. I said, will you draw it for me? And he looked at me like, what is wrong with you? And I went up there with this drawing. I looked at the tools and I still couldn't find the wrench. So I had to go back down and tell my brother I couldn't find it. And of course he went up, he got it right away. That has only happened to me once, but what that made me realize was how distraught I was, how confused and how I was scrambling and working so hard. And it gave me this, this deep, deep appreciation for people who are forgetful of how hard they're trying to fit in our world, how hard they're trying not to get the look I got from my brother of, you know, what's going on. So go ahead. I know you got a comment. This so is really, this is really important. And, and everybody needs to understand this. So you had an experience of profound forgetfulness due to stress. I had that experience. My, my, my son was in the NICU. My wife had a, had a busted Achilles and I was going crazy. And I had my full-time day job at case med that was the only time in my life that I left my bank card in the key bank slot, okay? But I didn't just do it once. I did it three times in a period of a month, which tells you that I was in a different place memory-wise. Now, everyone says, the neurologists say, okay, that's just pseudo-dementia. You know, that's just kind of fleeting, and you'll get back to your same old used-to-be, which is true. And it doesn't have any bearing at all on true dementia, which they say is real permanent, intractable, progressive, and yada, yada. Actually, that's a false dichotomy. So 10 years ago, if you said that um, dementia can be caused to some degree by stress, by protracted stress, people would say you're out of your mind. Now, I was at a conference at Berkeley, and actually we wrote a paper about this with some of the premier neurologists in the world. And everybody now recognizes that in addition to, you know, susceptibility genes and age and a whole lot of other things, possibly diet, certainly stress is a contributing factor to what they call hippocampal atrophy, that diminished volume in the hippocampus. And, and, and so look at stress. When, you, when you're under protracted stress, you know, year after year after year. And we live in such a stressful society. They call it the age of anxiety, you know, for a good reason. I mean, people are pulling their eyeballs out and trying to get through life, and it's so difficult for them. So um, you, the, under those conditions, your adrenal gland gets larger. It pumps out more cortisol. So you've got a lot of stress hormones in your body all the time. They're really good in short bursts for brief periods of time. That's the fight-flight response 
when you got to run away from a snake or an alligator or whatever. But if that's just left turned on over years, it the, the, the studies on that, I've done some of them with regard to mortality, vascular disease, so you're converting metabolites into fatty acids, so you get heart problems. You also have wound uh, healing slowing, so your wound healing slows by about 20% under those conditions. And also the third thing, which no one doubts anymore, nobody, is that you have hippocampal atrophy. And so one of the best things, my prescription for, for, for those who want to prevent Alzheimer's, you know, is um, go with friends, possibly um, a good, clean, tasteful, non-derisive joke. Like what did the envelopes say to the stamp? Stick with me, we'll go places. Laugh a little bit, lighten up. Go to a Greek restaurant because maybe the Mediterranean diet's good. I'm not sure, you know. And then on the way home, stop by the library and do a little reading. But the thing is, um, do what you can uh, to to shield yourself from from stress because the stress is a factor. It may not be a dominant factor, but it is a a relevant factor. That's why meditation, community prayerfulness for some people, depending on your tradition. If you want to chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo like I did when I was a kid in the Bay Area, you know, that's all okay. But you need things that that um, uh, help you to get away from the constant relentless pressure of stress that we all have to endure. And we do live in a stressful world, that's for sure. Um, well, I, I can't thank you enough for all your time today. This has just been absolutely fantastic. So you can get a hold of Stephen on his website at stephengpost.com. That's stephengpost.com. You can also email him at post at stephengpost.com. And then he also has a beautiful website called unlimitedloveinstitute.org unlimitedloveinstitute.org. I am also going to put on a link to his uh, past show that we did too, because I think you're going to want to listen to that. Uh, I'm sure that you found this one fascinating and that'll give you a little more, but if you go to his site, um, you'll, you'll be able to see all of his books. And again, God in Love on Route 80 um, is one that you are not going to want to miss. And um, I think it's page 144 is where the deeply forget, forgetful chapter is, um, but all of his chapters, it will be, um, I think, just life fulfilling for you when you read. Any last comments? Well, um, I like a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And I think that we can all believe in the beauty of connecting with deeply forgetful individuals in ways that are very profound and very meaningful and not unrealistic at all and um, that make them part of a common humanity and don't exclude them. Wonderful. I I totally agree. And I'm just going to add to that at the very end here, something I call tears, fears, and joy. Stephen, you talked about, you know, how crazy this world is and how busy we are. And sometimes, you know, we get on our our checklist of things to do and we get really task oriented instead of being relationship based and, and working on that connectiveness. And one of the things that I learned was that 
um, on this journey, many times you are going to come to tears or you're going to be holding them back or you're going to let them flow because you're going to feel great loss on many levels. And to that, I say you can't have great loss without great love. And for me, that helped lift me out of that, that you know, cyclone that was spinning me around. And for many of us, we have great fears of what the future will bring and what's going to happen. And we all know we can't control this disease. We, we can learn to walk graciously alongside it. But think about how many times you've made plans and wasted time worrying about things that never came true. We have to balance out how much time we're going to spend in the past and how much time we're going to spend in the future trying to prepare because when we spend too much time, we're losing that present moment. And the present moment is to me, the only moment that you can identify joy or create joy. And if that's what you want more out of life, then you have to, you have to consciously care about living in the moment. And I know for some, they think that that's a foo-foo statement, phrase it however you're comfortable. But if you want to find joy, you have to look for it and you have to be willing to create it. And so for our listeners, thank you again so much for joining us. I hope you like, click, and share this episode. Uh, Stephen, you're just such a powerful, powerful person in this world, really trying to pull us together and show us simple ways to look at very difficult situations. So thank you again. Namaste. Namaste. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.